All right, would you um, define seats, please? All right, let's, uh, I'd like to pray as, as uh... so let's, let's pray, please. Father, we do not have to ask you or beg you to be present. You made a promise to be with us uh, when we get together, and we're, we're extraordinarily grateful and we're humbled by your presence that you choose to be to be with us. God, I know that you're always with us individually. I don't understand it. I don't know how you do it through your spirit, but all of us have your undivided attention at all times. You don't live in this building. We don't leave you here, but you're, you're with us and we're grateful. But God, I do think there's something special and unique about your presence when we're together. And together, corporately, we have an opportunity to express our affection to you in our singing and in, um, in our time together. We get to express our affection for each other, um, to reconnect after being absent for, from each other for a week or more. And God, these are unique and these are special times and, and we're grateful. God, we also recognize that when we're together, we have an opportunity to, uh, in, in one voice, uh, bring to you the things that are on our hearts, the things that trouble us. And God, I know that there are uh, people within our community uh, for whom uh, we genuinely, God, are asking you for help. Um, God, I think of, um, of Charlie, of Anne-Marie, of Bob, and others who are right in the middle of different kinds of struggles and physical issues. And God, each one of these people uh, is special to us and to you. And we've been praying and will continue to pray for their healing. God, we pray, as Charlie said, God, he's praying for his complete recovery. And God, so do we for, for all of those people. Pray, God, that that you'd be present in their lives. You'd be helping them uh, to be patient as they go through difficult times, helping them to trust you, helping them to experience your presence and to know that they've not been forgotten. And God, we also pray for their healing from you. God, I also would like to ask that all of us lead very busy, very full, very hectic lives. And sometimes, God, we get so immersed in ourselves that we... Um, we forget about people that we love who are struggling. So God, through your spirit, I pray that from Monday to Saturday when we're not together, I pray, God, that you'd be reminding us even then to be faithful to people that we love who are struggling. God, help us to remember to pray. Help us to remember to express our love and affection with maybe phone calls or visits. And God, also pray. I also pray that you'd help us to find ways to make our love visible and tangible and to look for ways to uh, sit by people's side, to take care of meals, 
to drive whatever it is that needs to be done. God, I pray that you'd help us increasingly to be people, to be a community of, of action when it comes to love. God, I, I also want to pray for our kids program that's taking place even right now. Uh, I know that there are teachers downstairs with our kids who um, are starting lessons, uh, maybe playing games, maybe interacting with, with kids, maybe singing, I'm not sure. But God, uh, in the past week, I know that these teachers have uh, studied a lesson, read the Bible, thought about how to teach it most effectively, and God, my prayer is that uh, during the next hour, next 45 minutes, whatever, that uh, the teachers would be connecting with the kids individually and the kids with them, but at the same time, I pray that, that our teachers would have an opportunity to connect our kids with you and with truth from your word. So, God, thank you for them. Thank you for the number of kids that run around our church all the time. Thank you, God, that you've given us uh, so many young people. And I, I pray, God, that we'd be growing them up to know you and love you and trust you with their lives. God, uh, for us here in this room, uh, we're about to uh, pay attention to your word and take this very seriously. We believe, God, that your word, when we interact with your word, that your spirit is in the process of revealing truth to us and transforming us. And it's because of our concern and our, the serious nature of what we're about to do, God, my prayer as a teacher always is that um, I know very well how easy it is for me to get off track. And so I am going to trust again today that if in any way I say something that not an accurate reflection of your word. I trust that through your spirit, you will prevent any of us and all of us together from being influenced the wrong way. And I also trust, God, that when we talk about truth, and this is such an awesome privilege to know that you take truth that we teach, and through your spirit, you invade our souls and our minds and our hearts and our bodies and you transform us into the kind of people you want us to be and we want to be ourselves. So thank you, God, for doing that in the past, and I pray that you'll do that again this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, shortly before Don and I left for Wyoming, it was, um, it was a, uh, a driving trip. And shortly before we left for Wyoming... Uh, I was in a conversation with a friend, a text conversation. Uh, actually, let me be a little bit more truthful and candid. Uh, it, it wasn't a friend. It was kind of an acquaintance, okay? And we were texting back and forth about an upcoming event at which I'm going to be speaking, and he has other responsibilities. So we were texting about this and who has to do what, and in the conversation I happened to mention that I was going to be away and completely out of contact for two weeks, and he responded by asking where I was going, and when I told him I was going to Jackson, Wyoming, he said, hey, we, meaning he and his wife, we're going to be there too at exactly the same time. We should get together. Now, getting together with him was not exactly high on my priority list. Um, in fact, to be honest with you, not getting together with him was high in my priority list. Because uh, 
my acquaintance I'm talking about is someone that I call a hard-to-love person. Uh, when I'm with him, he is draining for me, draining to be with. Uh, he talks endlessly about himself and his exploits. He's loud. He's overbearing. He's arrogant. He has to be the center of attention in any group setting. He doesn't keep commitments, and he's known for being a person who manipulates others and takes advantage. Um, he's what I call what I think of as a hard-to-love person. Now, I know when Jesus said that we're supposed to love others, he doesn't make exceptions for hard-to-love people, that we're supposed to love them. So how do you love a hard-to-love person? How do you even like a hard-to-love person? Well, that's going to be our theme um, for the next couple of weeks. I don't know about you if I would ask how many of you have in your life hard-to-love people. Anybody? If not, uh, maybe <laughs> it's you. Uh, but... Um, <clears throat> My guess is that all of us have in our lives hard-to-love people. How do we like, how do we love hard-to-love people? That's what we'll talk about for the next four weeks, I think. But to finish the story with my hard-to-love person, when I got home, um, I happened to post on social media a couple pictures of a hike that I took when I was in Jackson, and I got a text from him. Now, I was in the car when I got this text. I was driving. My wife was sitting right next to me. My phone was on the console. The phone started dinging. My wife picked it up to read the text to me. And she said, oh, it's so-and-so. And then she read the text. And she said, he's asking, why didn't you call me when you were out here? And I responded, I answered out loud to Donna. And I said, well, you can reply because you're a um, donkey, only I didn't say donkey. I'm ashamed of that, but that's what I said. Now, Donna, who was, had the phone in my hand, Donna's reply to me started with my full name, Robert, <laughs> which uh, I don't know about you husbands, but I learned on, in Husband 101 that your full name is the universal sign for you're in trouble, right? So I started to justify my farm animal description to my wife, but even in the justifying it, I got a look from her that shamed me. She did not have to say it, but I know that there's a very well-known Bible verse that came to mind, that came to my mind anyway. I learned it in the King James English. Uh, Judge not, lest ye be judged. Obviously, some of you have heard that verse. Uh, do you ever use that verse on someone else? Judge not, lest ye be judged. You know, the truth is about that verse. That has to be one of the most misquoted sentences of Jesus. Uh, it, it comes from a paragraph in a fairly long section of teaching that Jesus did We've labeled it the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I'm going to read that paragraph in which that verse appears. Uh, it's in Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. I'll read it, and then, um, then we're going to talk about 
that verse and others surrounding it. Matthew chapter 7, starting at verse 1, we'll read to verse 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said this, Do not judge others, and you will not be judged. Listen to this sobering sentence. For you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a big log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. First, get rid of the log in your own eye and then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Now, let me be honest. Um, do you know what the hardest job for a bunch of us is going to be this morning? The hardest job for a bunch of us will be listening to this and applying this to ourselves. Rather than thinking, uh-huh, uh-huh, that's right. I hope she's paying attention and dealing with the log in her own eye. Hope she's listening. Right? The hardest truth will be for us to listen and apply it to ourselves. Because here's the truth. That verse, judge not lest ye be judged, is almost always misused by us when we quote it to judge someone else for judging us. That's what we're doing. Somebody gets our undies in a bunch and we respond by saying something like, well, I don't know who you think you are, but you have no right to judge me. Only God can do that. So I'm done with you. I know I'm not perfect. I don't need anybody else to tell me I'm not perfect, so... Be gone with you, wicked witch of the West. I'm done with you. Jesus said, judge not. Now, we might feel that way, honestly, but if we could be honest enough for a couple minutes and just push the pause button, we would have to admit that what we're doing when we do that is judging someone else for judging us. Which puts us in a real pickle, doesn't it? Now, here's the deal. I don't tell you that. I'm not painting this picture of this messed up judgment thing. I'm not telling you this so that, you know, you think, well, Jesus is really confusing or he doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm telling you that so that you understand that there is a certain kind of judging that is always going to be necessary. There's a certain kind of judging that we cannot live our Christian lives without. Uh, in fact, Jesus, if you look at other things that Jesus taught, there are times when Jesus actually told us there are going to be times and there are going to be places and there are going to be people that are going to require us to judge. For example, there's a time in Matthew chapter 24 when Jesus said, you need to watch out. You need to be on your guard. Do not let anyone fool you 
Many men will come claiming to speak for me, and they will fool many people. And Jesus is telling us that. He's saying, watch out. We can't watch out without doing a form of judging. It's required to determine who is speaking for Jesus and who isn't it. Um, There's another time, another situation where Jesus, Matthew chapter 18, when Jesus is saying, look, if a brother or sister sins against you, go to them. Tell them what they did wrong. You can't do that unless you're engaging in a kind of judging. Uh, There's another time still when Jesus said, Matthew chapter 16, he said, watch out. Same kind of warning as before, watch out, be on your guard, beware the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You can't watch out, you can't guard yourself against hypocrisy unless you're doing a form of judging. So for us to be obedient to Jesus in any of those three situations and several others in the Gospels, you can't be obedient to him unless you're engaging in a form of judging. But we all know We all know that there is a form of judging that is wrong. It's destructive. It's destructive because it hurts us. It hurts us when we do it to others. It hurts us when it is done to us. It hurts other people. And absolutely, positively, for sure, it hurts and it damages the reputation of Jesus and his church when we do it. So if that's true, if there's a form of judging we have to do and a form of judging we have to avoid, is is there a way to draw a line between the two? Well, I wouldn't ask unless the answer was yes. So yes, there's a way. Here's what it is. Jesus, in what I read for you, Jesus is actually teaching us to observe a kind of golden rule judging. Do you remember the golden rule? Anybody learned the golden rule growing up? Anybody know it now? I learned it in the King James English. Many of you did as well. You can probably say it with me in King James English. Do, as, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Yeah, that's the way we learned it. And I don't know if you know this. Jesus actually, we're in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus taught the golden rule in this same chapter in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. It's just like seven or eight verses away. I finished reading at verse 5, but if you keep reading in Matthew chapter 7, you get to verse 12, and in verse 12, same chapter, there's the golden rule where Jesus says, do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that is taught in the Law of the Prophets. So Jesus says, simply treat others the way you want to be treated, which is so simple, isn't it? Yes, the answer is yes. So simple and so brilliant. Teach, treat others the way you want to be treated. So what Jesus does in these verses about judging, Jesus applies the golden rule to judging. And if you look at verses 1 and 2, what I read to you, Jesus actually says when it comes to judging, he says, whatever standard I use in judging someone else, that is the standard by which I will be judged. According to Jesus, you'll be judged the same way you judge others. Which is sobering, isn't it? That's scary. 
I mean, if we take Jesus seriously, if we believe what he says, that's scary. So, since this is about you and it's about me, and we are not applying it to anybody else, I hope this, since it's about us, and since you and I are the ones listening and paying attention to this, let's kind of put the kickstand down in our brains a couple minutes, and let's just ask the question, how is it that I hope to be judged? Ask that of yourselves. How is it that I hope to be judged? Long ago, in the early days of being a pastor, uh, I started to become aware of some very dark shadows lurking in my heart, and every once in a while, those shadows came out to play, and I was ashamed. And when I became ashamed of who I was and what I was doing, and was wondering about grace and forgiveness, I found in an Old Testament class in seminary, I found a prayer of David in Psalm 51. Have you ever read Psalm 51? I'm, you don't necessarily have to go there or, or know it or read it, but if you look at Psalm 51, you will see in the title of the psalm that this is the psalm that David wrote when his affair with Bathsheba became public. And David started his prayer this way. Uh, be, be merciful to me, O God, because of your unfailing love. David is saying, God, in light of what I've done, I'm putting myself in your hands. I'm going to ask you to treat me according to your mercy. I remember when I learned that prayer, I started praying those exact words. Still do, often. I, I pray that prayer. When I become aware that there is uh, sin in my life that deserves judgment, I will often pray David's prayer. Father, treat me according to your mercy. I'm putting myself in your hands. Treat me according to your mercy. That is what I want for myself. When I am judged, that's how I want to be judged. That's what I'm asking. My guess is that's true for most of us, if we're honest, that when it comes to judgment, what we are saying, God, I'm putting myself in your hands. Treat me according to your grace and your mercy. Now, according to Jesus, if we take him seriously, if that is what I want for myself, then this is how I am going to have to judge others. Right? The answer is yes. Yes. Can you imagine what would happen if there really was a society of Christ followers on this planet who approached all of our judging of others by starting with this prayer. Father, the truth is, I don't like him. He's a hard-to-love person. But Father, be merciful to him. Because of your unfailing love, treat him with grace. Imagine. 
Imagine how different our Facebook pages might be. Imagine how different our Twitter feeds would be if we actually decided to follow Jesus and be obedient. Imagine how our neighborhoods would change. Imagine how our workplaces and our schools and how our churches would change if we started to take Jesus seriously and listen to him. Imagine if the next time you were about to unload on some hard-to-love person, you decided to treat that person in the same way you want to be treated. Father, be merciful to her. Treat her according to your love. It is almost painful to imagine, isn't it? Painful to imagine. And yet, this is what Jesus said. Before you even think, he is saying, before you even think about dealing with hard-to-love people, deal with yourself. That's the message of what ends up being a very well-known and almost uh, comical lesson on our eyes in what I read for you. Because after those couple comments on judging, Jesus gives us this short little parable in which he says, why are you so bent out of shape about the speck in someone else's eye when you have a log sticking out of your own? Now, what this ends up being is a really important lesson about how how to deal with hard-to-love people. And the lesson is, Jesus is teaching us something that could not be more plain. And the lesson is, first, deal with yourself. Deal with your own hard-to-loveness. Now, I know what most of us have done, because I've done it too. Our tendency is to respond to this, this command of Jesus to deal with ourselves first, our tendency is to say, look, I, I've dealt with it. I already know I'm not perfect. Uh, this is an easy truth. I already know it. I know I'm flawed. That is not what Jesus is saying. If you read this carefully, Jesus isn't saying, be aware of the log sticking out of your eye. He is not saying, excuse the log sticking out of your eye. He is actually saying, fix it. That's what he says in verse 5. Fix it. He says, get rid of the log in your own eye, and then you can start dealing with hard-to-love people. Now, just how do we do that? Well, there's a wonderful little lesson in that very short parable of Jesus, you know, why do you deal with the speck, etc. In that parable, there are two sets of contrasts. 
The first set of contrasts is the obvious one. It is very easy to see. Nobody misses this one. It's the contrast between a speck or a splinter and a log or a beam. Everybody sees that when nobody misses it. That's the contrast we can't miss between a speck and a beam. But in this parable, there's a second contrast. I honestly think it's the more important of the two. Everybody misses this one. Because of the way we read, we read over it. But this second contrast is, I think, more important, and it has to do with how we see. Um, so follow this. In fact, if you have your Bibles open, you can look. In verse 3, Jesus asks this question. This is the way it's phrased in my Bible. He asks this question, why do you see the speck in your friend's eye? Now, just pause for a second before we get to the second half. In the Greek, in the language that this is written in, that Greek word for the word see is the word blepo, which is, you know, you can learn some Greek and impress your friends if you want to. That's the word uh, for see, blepo. It's just a very common, ordinary word for see or look at a thing. Kind of like you're walking down the street with a friend and you say, hey, look at that dog on the front porch or... Do you see how many tomatoes are on his vines? Very common, very ordinary word. It's simple. See or look. Now, you would expect that Jesus in the second half will say, why do you see the speck in your friend's eye, but you do not see the log in your own? That's what you would expect him to say, but he doesn't. Jesus uses an entirely different word. He uses the word katonoeo, which doesn't mean to see. It means to observe a thing carefully, to contemplate a thing, to consider it deeply. So you see what Jesus is telling us to do? Why do you see a speck in someone else's eye when you have not yet considered deeply or contemplated the log in your own eye? That's the question Jesus is asking, and it's important. It gets at what Jesus is asking us to do to deal with the log in our own eye before we start dealing with hard-to-love people. We are compelled by Jesus to contemplate, to consider deeply, to think carefully about the beam in our own eyes. Now, there's a really good reason for this, for what Jesus is asking us to do, and the good reason is that we human beings, all of us, there are no exceptions, we human beings have a very strong tendency to do the exact opposite. What our tendency is, is to contemplate, to consider deeply, to think a lot about the speck in someone else's eye and to give a passing glance at our own. Now, there's a reason for this. There's a very good reason. The reason is actually biblical, and I'll get to that in a minute. But even though there's a biblical reason, there's also... uh, what we would call a a psychological reason. 
and, and they're both the same, but it's this. We human beings have a wonderful feature in our brains. Our brains are wired for self-protection. Uh, it's incredible, really. It's awesome how quickly and how carefully and how thoroughly our bodies are wired to protect us from pain. And for the most part, that's a really good thing. Keeps us from grabbing onto the hot end of the marshmallow stick. It's what makes us blink and squint when the sand is blowing on the beach. It's why it is hard to get rotten eggs or rotten milk or rotten fish past our noses and into our mouth because our brain is wired to protect us. But this hardwired ability to protect ourselves comes with a downside. And the downside is that we learn to protect ourselves from dealing with hurtful, painful truths about ourselves. We protect ourselves from them. And as a result of protecting ourselves from them, we do not do what Jesus asks us to do, to contemplate the beam in our own eye. Now, in the world of psychology or psychiatry, uh, because we write textbooks and manuals, etc., when we talk about this ability that we have to protect ourselves from pain, in the world of psychology, we call this our defense mechanisms. It's how we ignore or avoid painful truths about ourselves. And there is a ton, a ton of psychological research that is now telling us that as human beings, every single human being, me and all of us, we all practice a level of self-deception. All of us do. We lie to ourselves about ourselves. We deceive ourselves. Now, that's the psychological world. This is also true biblically. In fact, the, the biblical wisdom is much older than the psychological wisdom. It goes way back, 2,700 years ago, a man named Jeremiah wrote about this. And Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all things. Another ancient wise man, Isaiah, pretty much a contemporary of Jeremiah, 2,700 years ago, he said, all we like sheep have gone astray. Biblically, we deceive ourselves. Psychologists now know the truth of that. Now, here's the good news. Not a single person needs to stay deceived. Hearts can be healed. Lost sheep can be found. In fact, there's also ancient wisdom. It's actually older than Jeremiah and Isaiah. It comes from the book of Proverbs. A very old, old wise man said this, a wise man understands his ways. It's the fool who deceives himself. That's what Jesus is instructing us to do, to understand our ways, to think deeply about our ways, which is why Jesus said it this way, the truth 
will set you free. So here's the deal. In the interest of helping all of us to understand our ways, spent a bunch of time this week trying to figure out and trying to study and try to learn how is it that we deceive ourselves. Spent a lot of time with psychology manuals doing research, and I found out an interesting thing, that psychologists have labeled somewhere between 20 and 30 different ways that we deceive ourselves. So for the next hour and a half, I'm going to go through 30 of them. No, um, let me give you, uh, I see some wide eyes, like, oh, no. Um, Let me give you six of the most popular. See if any of these sound familiar. One way we deceive ourselves, according to psychologists, and this is biblical wisdom as well, is repression. There are ideas or thoughts or feelings that we think are wrong, and so we banish them unconsciously. We repress them. We refuse to consciously admit that these feelings are there. So, for example, you have kids. Your kids are about the same age as a dozen other kids in the church. All those other kids are doing mission trips. They're getting married to great Christian spouses. They're leading Bible studies. They give testimonies in church about their faith. Sometimes in church, you hear those moms and dads saying things like, it is so satisfying to know that all of our praying made a difference on our kids. It's great to know that all of our hard work raising our kids worked. We're so glad that we were faithful to Christ and that it worked. We're so proud of our kids and their faith. Well, you do the exact same thing. But your kids are proud rebels. They've rejected your faith. They may even be living by morals that are the exactly opposite of yours and what you wish for. Maybe they're living in ways that are actually shameful to you. Now, you know very well it would be borderline pagan to have thoughts in your heads like, well, I wish their kids would go off the rails too. Or, Sometimes I wish I never had kids. Or, I hate being around those parents. I despise them for how well it worked for them. Now, because we cannot justify holding those thoughts in our minds, we repress them, we stuff them away. We refuse to admit that they're there. But by repressing those truths, what we are always doing is creating distance. Distance between yourself and God. Distance between you and the church. Between you and your church friends. Between your soul and God's soul. And we will end up blaming something else when the distance is there When it's there and people start to notice and someone will say, hey, haven't seen you there for a while, we will blame it on something else than the truth. We'll say, well, you know, I just, I don't know, I just don't get anything out of it anymore. Or, 
oh, I'm just so busy, or it's just a dry time in my life, I'll get back someday. We repress the truth. The second way we do this is called projection. We're critical of things that we see in other people when what we're really ashamed of is the same thing as in us. But we won't admit it. If you're old enough like me, um, I can think of, uh, and I did this last night, I can think of at least one dozen TV preachers from 30 years ago till today, all of whom spent all kinds of time scolding us about homosexuality or they had their own laundry list of sexual sins. But over the course of 30 years, every single one of those TV preachers, one by one by one, was derailed and knocked off of their pulpits by the same sexual sins. And their reputations were tarnished and the reputation of Christ was tarnished. The ugliness that they saw and scolded everybody else for was really ugliness that they feared deeply in themselves. So we project. Third way we do this is rationalizing. We justify or we excuse ourselves with um, excuses that really don't hold up. In Christian circles, we do this sometimes by saying, hey, (laughs) we're all sinners. Nobody's perfect. I know I'm not, so what you see is what you get. Or we might say things like, everybody else is doing the same thing. Or we might say, well, she did it first. I'm just defending myself. Or sometimes, in a a twisted way, in, in Christian circles, what we do is we will actually tolerate abuse from a person, manipulation, simply because we really don't have the courage to confront it. And so we let it happen, and we say things like, well, you know, um, I'm just being gracious like Jesus. So we rationalize. I've always thought, by the way, it's a little bit of a side, that the bumper sticker that says Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven, is the gold standard of rationalizing. So if any of you need to go off, out and rip off a bumper sticker... <laughs> Uh, fourth, fourth way we do this is displacement. We take out our anger on one person and we displace it on someone who is safer. So, for example, you have a really, really bad day at school, but you can't actually yell at your teacher. So after a bad day at school, you walk in the door and your mom says something like, so how was your day? And you slam the door and yell at your mom because it's easier and safer to be mad at your mom than it is the teacher. Displacement. Fifth label for things we do, I'm calling Phariseeism. Phariseeism is when we focus on a set of rules that are usually superficial but visible. 
people see them. A set of rules, usually superficial and visible, we focus on these in order to hide and cover up some really deep flaws that we have. So, you know, you go through life and you're proud of the fact that, you know, I don't curse, I tithe, uh, I don't go to bars, I don't cheer for the Dallas Cowboys, and a list of other sins. But even in the process of being obedient to those rules, you are covering up secret addictions that maybe only you know about. Finally, the last of the six that we do is passive aggressiveness. I saved this one for last because this is my spiritual gift. Um, And I'm ashamed of it. Um, Somewhere along the line, if you're like me, probably, um, you know, you grew up in in well-meaning Sunday school classes where the lesson that we picked up was that it is wrong and sinful to be angry. Anger's a bad thing, we came to believe. So because we've accepted that, when we're angry or when we're feeling hostile, we know that we can't express our anger or hostility to someone on whom we're dependent for a relationship. Can't be honest about it. So we've learned to show that anger and that hostility in ways that are are frankly more acceptable, we think. For example, a skill that I excelled at for many years was the skill of pouting. If you want lessons, I'll give them. Uh, sometimes, sometimes I call it the silent treatment. Erin, um, my, my Wyoming daughter, we, who I got to spend two weeks with, uh, of my three children, Erin is the child who, who liked drama. So we would do... Uh, we a three-week vacation. Uh, This vacation was supposed to be the vacation of a lifetime. We toured several southern states. We came up through the Midwest and all kinds of fun stuff. Out of everything we did, the highlight for Aaron was when we were on a six-lane highway in Chicago, and somebody hit, they rear-ended the trailer that we were hauling that had all of our camping gear in it, and Aaron got to watch the police do their thing on a six-lane highway in Chicago. You ask her about that trip and what she remembers. Oh, yeah, we got it. That's what she talks about. Anyway, Aaron, my drama-loving daughter, Aaron used to come home to us, and she would complain. She would say, Mom and Dad, you guys are so boring. You never fight, she would say. All of my friends have parents who yell and they scream and they fight and they throw things and we get to talk about it at school. I never get to tell any exciting stories about you because you never fight. And I would say, Aaron, we're actually fighting with each other right now. We've been fighting for four and a half weeks. We just haven't told each other yet. Now, thankfully... Um, and, and I mean this truly, and you can ask Donna, thankfully. Jesus has been growing me up a little bit in the last few years, and my marriage is a whole lot better for it. And he will. He will. If we take the time to contemplate the beam in our own eyes. 
Now, there are other forms of passive aggressiveness, uh, not just pouting. Sometimes people will choose to perform badly, to perform a task badly as a way of getting even. Uh, sometimes people will, you know, they're ticked off at you, but they won't admit it, so they just won't return your texts or your phone calls or your emails, and plenty of others. But these are just six of many ways in which we refuse to contemplate the beam in our own eyes. There are plenty of other ways. And if you think about it, the reason we do this is obvious. We do it to avoid the pain of seeing ugliness in ourselves. We do it to prop up our own self-esteem. We do it to cover over our own feelings of being inadequate. We do it to avoid our own guilty feelings. But Jesus is saying, and if we take him at his word, if we believe him, Jesus is saying this, before you spend one second trying to learn how to love hard-to-love people, before you spend a millisecond looking at the speck in someone else's eye, contemplate your own. Examine your own hard-to-loveness. It is there. It really is. Look at it. Examine it deeply. Consider it. Why is Jesus asking us to engage in this pain? Well, let me explain it briefly in like two minutes and explain it this way. I was standing in line at a grocery store one time, a long time ago. I saw a magazine cover, and the cover story said this. Totally normal women who stalk their ex-boyfriends. Now, this morning, just so you know, I went online to see if I could find a picture of that cover. I couldn't, but that's what I saw, came home and wrote it down. And I, I remember standing there thinking, that's really an odd phrase. Totally normal women. <laughs> what would one of those look like? Uh, And then also wondering if stalking doesn't disqualify you, I wonder what would. Well, here's the truth about me. Totally normal? I am not. And neither are you. Do you know what I depend on every single moment of my life? Grace. Grace. Sometimes I tell people, I have to breathe grace. Every breath I take is grace. I depend on grace for this moment right now. I depend on grace for the next and the next and the next. And maybe you do too. Now, if I depend on grace and if I need it desperately, what about the person I think is so hard to love? Can you imagine a world in which I would say, 
I depend on grace entirely, but I don't want it for him. Can you imagine? Well, I can't either. And so we will start with ourselves, acknowledging that when it comes to hard to love people, it is always me first. Let's pray. God, we have a difficult task ahead of us, and we depend entirely on your grace and on the presence of your Spirit. We will, over the next few weeks, engage in learning how to love hard to love people, and it won't be easy. But by far, Father, the most difficult task is dealing with our own hard-to-loveness. God, I pray that you would expose us to truth about ourselves and to grace. I know that Jesus, more than anything else, was a human being of whom the Bible says he came full of truth and full of grace. We'll depend on that, God, and I pray that it be made real in all of our lives. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.